Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How you doing? I'm doing okay. It's been a really Loaded question, right? Tough, okay. Yeah, it's been an extremely tough week. And today of all days is global running day. And rather than doing what we would normally do on global running day and celebrating global running day, we wanted to stay true to the events of the week and, and just be real that this is, this is tough stuff. And we um, honestly, we're at a loss and where we are right now in our country, but there's always hope. And my hope, and, and I, I think your hope too, is that you, you always look for the helpers and you always look for the bright lights. And all of us are hanging out on social media because we can't go a lot of places still. So all of us are observing all of the protests and all the events stemming from the protests. I'm trying to be blase in how I'm speaking because this, we understand that this is not a political podcast. But when politics and morality align, it's really hard to not be political. So I'm not going there, but I just am explaining that we're in this week that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of, on the heels of George Floyd's murder. We're in the middle of people deciding whether they want to risk their lives by going to protests and or risk their lives by exposing themselves to a virus at a protest. There's just so there's a confluence of events that we cannot ignore, even on a running podcast. So to that end, um, the Roadrunners Club of America, which is the governing body that certifies us as coaches, put out something the other day on social media about the resources that we can seek as running coaches to be better coaches and to be more inclusive as a running community, which is something we've talked about. And the president of the RCA, with great intentions, listed all of the resources and books, many of which we've listed on our own social media as of late. And our friend Will, who we've coached, <laughs> Will Eddy, um, responded. And Will is a black man. He lives in our community. He runs with us. We've coached him on and off for many years. He's an incredible runner. He is an incredible athlete, an incredible person, was also a member of our book club, and is just incredible an dad. awesome guy. I've always looked to Will for his parenting um, because I think he's an incredible dad to two boys. Incredible. Just an awesome person. Yes. And he responded to the post of the president of the RCA with his own experiences as a member of our local running club, as a member of our community, and what it's like to run as a black male. And Will, what Will, Will wrote was just so moving and he opened the door for us to ask him would you come on our podcast and will because he knows us and we have good intentions and he also knows that we are we, we want to get his experiences out there and we want him to have a platform that maybe he wouldn't have otherwise because maybe some people wouldn't be able to access this podcast or wouldn't want to um, we wanted Will to come on today. So Will, um, thanks for taking the time to talk with us during this incredibly different, difficult time in our world. And we appreciate it. We realize we are uninformed because we don't have the nuanced information you have. And we can explain your experience and we recognize that. So we hope though that by you generously giving us your time on this platform, we can start and continue a difficult and necessary conversation. So 
thanks for coming on the podcast, Will. Thank you for having me, Lisa and, uh, Lisa and Julie. I really appreciate it as well. Um, this is definitely a challenging time and also a continuous um, event in our, in our society as a whole. So thank you for giving me the platform and being willing to do this. So for our listeners who don't know you, Will, we, we know you and the runners in our community know you well because um, you're a very active member in our, in our running community. Why don't you um, tell folks just a little bit about your background, where you grew up, um, you know, did you run when you were younger, where you went to college, just some, you know, just give us some context. Absolutely. So uh, I grew up in Riverdale, Maryland. It's about 15 minutes from College Park, Maryland, close to the University of Maryland College Park. I attended um, Parkdale High School, which is also located in Riverdale, Maryland, in Prince George's County. While I was at Parkdale High School, I was a captain of the indoor track team, outdoor track team, cross country, and because I had Forrest Gump tendencies, I also run summer track <laughs> as well. Uh, and then I moved from high school to go to, to earn my bachelor's in public health from University of Maryland College Park. And after that, I started working full time, and in the evening, I was pursuing my master of business administration and Master of Science in General Management. After I finished that, I enrolled again. I was still working full-time in a PhD program at University of Maryland Eastern Shore and completed my PhD um, this year. I graduated May 15, 2020. Congratulations. And, uh, Virtually graduated, right? <laughs> yes. Virtually graduated. Yeah. Yep. And, and you, work, you work for the government, right? You've been a public yes. servant for, for many years. Yes, I've worked for the government uh, since 2001, since May of 2001. So almost close to 20 years working for the federal government. Wow. And, and you're running. Did you continue your running in college or did you take a break? Um, because I ran indoor track, outdoor track, cross country and summer track, as a teen, I felt that I didn't have time for girls because I was constantly running. So in college, I wanted to be able to have a social life uh, because in, in high school, we, we did a couple of um, two-a-days. So between doing two-a-days and indoor tracks, is so long. By the time you get home, it's like past midnight. So you didn't really have time to um, socialize with anyone else. So in college, I wanted to have some social life. So I ran my first freshman year and played soccer, and then the rest of the year I did not. And I vowed that I would never run again because nobody cares about running except runners. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I was having a little bit of um, jealousy between running and basketball and football because everyone tends to know a lot about those sports. and. For those who are not runners, they often ask me, oh, what are you doing in 100 dash? I'm like, I'm a miler. I don't do 100 mile dash. <laughs> I ran cross country. Everyone runs the same distance. It's 3.1 miles. So I vowed that I would never run again. However, um, about 10 years ago when I started my PhD program, I needed an outlet to help relieve some of the stress between working full time and working on my PhD in the evening. So I, I picked up running again, and during that process, too, I also gained a lot of weight. I was involved, I was um, re-ended by, by a drunk driver, 
And it took me about two and a half years to start walking without pain and being able to do basic things again. So I went from like about 155 to 295 pounds and I'm only five, six. So I put on a lot of weight. Um, my organization, my federal government organization had an event called the Take a Walk. So it was a day that they encouraged employees to run, uh, to run or walk three and a half, 3.2 miles. And when I did that with some friends that I knew some, because some people knew me from high school and some of the records that I had. So I did it with them and they, what we call them running, um, they smoked me. So my, my <laughs> ego was crushed a little bit. So I was like, I need help. So if I can't do three miles, I need help because I was doing 10 miles in, in high school. So, um, so I, I said I needed help. So I went online and searched and I found running club and I joined the running club to, to help me to, to lose weight and also to, to just be healthier in general. And I started running with the running club, I guess about 10 years ago, I did my first 5k and a couple of the um, people that I ran with, they informed me, oh, well, if we do 5k, we probably can do the 10k program. It's like, if I almost died in a 5k, I'm not going to do a 10k <laughs> program. <laughs> so Bob Elmore, so we ended up doing uh, the 10k program for several years. And after that, someone else said, well, you know, we're slow, but we can get fast. So we should do the speed development. So I ended up doing the speed development. And then after that, it's like, we should do half marathon. We'll do the half marathon. Then from there, it's like, well, we can do a marathon. I was like, you guys are really crazy. And it's like, well, we should do it. So I ended up enrolling for the um, first time marathons program through my running club. And after that, the um, advanced running the advanced marathon training program and from that time on i recycled through all those different programs on an annual basis and you're a talented runner we have to say you are even you know you you had your history of running and then you you ended up losing a lot of weight getting into great shape and you're you're, you're a speedy runner you're a fast runner so don't be modest you've had some really great accomplishments in your running thank you thank you yeah. Hard work. yeah and you've you've definitely helped us be better coaches because you're one of the runners who you came to us with such talent and we had to be the ones pretty early in our coaching to learn how to say gently to uh really strong runners slow the f down because you're running too fast and you're gonna get injured and here you are i mean you already had so much talent and um it's always fun to work with you because you come to us with such enthusiasm and um, you have the drive and you know you're one of the clients we have when we work with you where we have to actually pull you back because you're so strong and so dedicated oh thank you so much thank you so much uh, I feel the same way about you guys seeing all your um, running and dedication and your involvement in the community and your involvement with your children uh, those things uh, really touched me I think I went to a couple of events where I saw your children volunteering and doing different things and that that uh, really resonate with me so thank you all for for what you do in the community and you you have two boys we should mention um, I mentioned before how I admire your parenting because you you're, you're a great great father but um, so you want to talk about your, your two boys real quick just how old they are and what they do if they're running <laughs> Um, my, yes, I have two boys. They are currently 12 and 16. When they were younger, they would run more with me. 
um, now that they're older, they have their own friends and want to watch different shows and things of that nature. But my oldest is also runs track, so he's still running. My youngest, he runs from time to time. He's more of a soccer player. And, um, and it's been a joy to be able to share some of the some of the experiences of running with them. Absolutely. So talk to us and tell us, um, switching a little bit from running, share with us, how are you feeling right now, especially this week? And what would you like to share with our listeners about this week and how you're feeling? Um, this week, it, to me, it feels like deja vu um, again. It feels like deja vu in the context that when I was growing up, I remember in high school where we watched movies from the 1960s where um, Blacks were protesting and they were being, they were using fire hoses to hose them down. Um, obviously, I wasn't alive at that time, but while I was in high school or maybe after high school, I remember Rodney King being beat on national television. Um, and I remember Freddie Gray from Baltimore dying on the hands of cops. And many other instances, even as I was growing up, when I started dating, being stopped randomly by police officers and and often um, either because we we fit a certain profile sometimes in, in black neighborhoods, they tend to, when, when the crime occurs, often they tend to describe the criminals as between five, six and six, two. So that's like the whole daggone neighborhood. So, so the cops end up stopping everyone and everyone fits that profile. And often uh, I remember vividly in high school being stopped quite a, often. Um, and when my son was, when my first son was, he was born in Holy Cross Hospital. I was going to, to his mom when he was born. I got stopped multiple times. I had to plead with them that I've been stopped multiple times. This is not a day to stop me because I will miss the experience of seeing my son being born. Wait a minute. So during the same ride to the hospital to see your son being born, you were stopped multiple times? I was stopped twice on the way to Shady Grove. Stop and it. So what, what, I mean, what's going through your head and, and why multiple times on the same, not that you can provide the answer, but what well, was what, going what through we, your what, head? What did they tell you? <laughs> what, what did they say was a reason? Well, often for some, uh, it doesn't happen to everyone, for some, I have I have people that I grew up with or friends that I went to school with who are also police officers. So I'm not casting. Uh, often they are working in an environment where everything is negative and that's what they see all the time. So because of working in that environment where everything is negative, there is somebody who looks like me who committed a crime. So therefore, when they see me, they don't see the individual. They see a black person. And that's what they go on. And based on that, you, you have to go through everything as though you're a criminal until they can prove that you're not a criminal. And often, sometimes when they stop you, it can take 30 minutes before they let you go. And in my case, 
I was afraid I'm going to miss seeing my son being born by the time they go through the process and check their systems to make sure I don't have any criminal record. I have, I never had a felony, even though, you know, I was born in DC, lived in this area all my life. I've never had a felony. Wait, uh, let's stop for a second. That statement in about of itself is crazy that you have to say to us right now as if, as if, I've never had a felony. Like you, it's it's a negative versus. Of course, you've never had a felony. But the fact that you have to qualify that and say that, I think, is is very compelling. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's um. For some, for some of us, that's that's part of the life you live. Um, even though it's not it's not justified by any activities that you that you engage in. And one of the things, I'm a reader, so I always read different books. Something that I read in a book is that if you stop to address every dog that barks, you would never reach your destination. So in terms of constant harassment, stopping by police or people calling cops because they see you running the neighborhood, or um, there was a time when I was, someone called the cops on me when I was in a library. <laughs> Uh, yeah, why don't why don't you tell that story um, in, in the context? You told us that before we started recording. We thought it was it's a crazy story. So I, um, as I mentioned earlier, I've always worked full time. I started working full time when I was fifteen, and I've worked full time from that time to to the present time. At, at that particular time, I was working full time and. I, I was enrolled in a PhD program that had classes in the evening. So often I had to, any free time that I had, I had to use that time to study and get things done. In addition, I had to figure out the times that I'm less likely to procrastinate. So what I found out was if I do certain things right after I get off work, I'm able to get more done versus if I go home, and do different things and TV, and then I, I would procrastinate. So therefore, one time I was having challenges with multivariate statistics, and one of my coworkers informed me that he knew of um, multivariate statistic tutor from my job who I can pay, and he would tutor me, and he'd live close by to my job in Bethesda, Maryland. So we planned that I get off work at five, I'll be at his apartment at six. So I went to his apartment at six so that we can, we can tutor me in statistics. His apartment had a library. So we decided we're gonna go to the library and go through the multivariate statistics in the library. When we arrived at the library, I was the only person who looked like me, meaning I was the only African-American. That didn't phase me because my environment is often like that. So I didn't really think much of it until Five minutes later, the cops showed up and they said I had to leave. And I said, why? And then the lady, I was informed that one of the ladies that was in there called the cops because she said she did not feel comfortable by me being there. So the cops then questioned me on why am I there? Do I live there? And I mentioned to them, this is my friend who lives here. And we come and um, he was very upset too because he realized it was racism. She was it wasn't that she was fearful. She just didn't want me there. And eventually, um, I had to leave the library, and we had to go elsewhere to another library in order for us to study. And in that particular instance, because I was coming from work, I was insured and tied. So I didn't even 
not that you have a look of a criminal look per se, but how much more professional can someone look when you have on a shirt and tie, dress pants and dress shoes with books to fit for someone else to feel threatened by your presence in a library. And there were other people there studying with coffees and doing the same things that we were doing. Um, and that was just another day of some of the experiences of being African-American male um, in all these types of um, racism. And I, I still couldn't really process it because I had schoolwork to do. I couldn't be angry to the point where it would divert me from studying so that I can actually pass the statistics test that I'm trying to study for. Um, so he profusely apologized because he realized what was going on and he's um, Caucasian male. And, and I should say, we live, we live in an area that's pretty diverse. So I think a lot of times, you know, we think, oh, well, we're in a very open-minded, diverse area. And, and that's not, it doesn't matter where you are because that can happen anywhere. Absolutely. Because that particular area, I've worked there for 15 years. So it wasn't even like a new area to me. Um, I've worked there for 15 years. My sons go to school in the same area. My wife works in the same area. And still this type of... Um, racism still still exists. Will, can I ask you, just backing up a little bit, did, did your parents ever talk to you growing up about, I mean, the conversations that we can, we can get to that you've had to have with your sons, did your parents kind of talk to you, explain to you, like, you know, give you the mindset of how to, how to handle this? Um, no, I didn't grow up with either of my parents. And I was raised by my grandmother and my grandmother didn't, uh, she was not formally educated. And she didn't really know how to deal with these things. So I just learned things from whatever I think uh, my help. Um, even when my children were born in terms of some of these things, I went to the library and find out how to be a dad or, you know, what to do, what to expect when you're expecting the, the, the book that they give you when you're pregnant. I read that from the beginning to the end. And I went to Holy Cross Hospital, had a class for dads, I took the class. And as all these different things come up, eventually I just realized, I just said, well, you can read all the books you want. At the end of the day, if you were a kid, what would you appreciate? A father who loves you, who tries his best to, to guide you and help you. And that's what I try to do for my children. So in terms of um, racism, I don't really, I mean, I don't know if other people know either. I don't really know how to necessarily, how do you tell your child that someone jogging got killed and you're a runner and they're a runner? What is, I mean, I don't even know how would you say, like, just don't run? Because there was nothing you can do in that situation. Um, in the past, when people have been shot and killed, when they were stopped by a police officer at about five, seven years ago. I'd had similar conversations with my sons where I told them, when you get older and you're driving, always make sure, even if the police officer is wrong or is being rude to you, always keep a very soft voice, always show your hands, always put your hands in front of the steering wheel when they ask you to provide your driver's license and registration before you go and get your registration, inform the police officer that you're going to move one of your hands 
to get the registration so that they do not panic and shoot you that you were moving. And also, as an African-American male, I, I informed them that just because some of your friends do certain things doesn't mean that you can do it because some people have different expectations or perceive you differently because you're African-American male. And I had to tell my children that because my children go to a diverse school where many of their friends are not necessarily African-American. So they would do things with them that all kids do, but in society, sometimes that could be detrimental. And I mean, it's, it's scary. It's um, as a parent, you fear for their lives. If the smallest things happen, my oldest, it looks like he's going to be tall. So I have to be even more careful with them because I'm going to say they feel threatened, even if he doesn't have a weapon on him, just the fact of moving his hands, he could be shot and killed. So that's very, um, that's a, that's a fear for, for me as a parent. And I don't want them to be fearful living in the world, but I also don't want them to be naive. So how do you find that middle ground of keeping your children safe, especially as they get older and they're going to be going to college and doing things with their friends? Um, recently I had the same conversation with my youngest. He's, he's only 12, but I had to tell him about driving and having his hands out. If police officers are rude to you, do not raise your voice. Do not um, do anything um, quickly. Always put your hands in front of you. Listen to what they say. Follow. I mean, all these things. And even with that, they can still get shot and killed because we've seen it happen. We've seen where a guy was asked to retrieve his driver's license, and he told him that he has a gun in the car. And when he moved, they shot and killed him in front of his child and his girlfriend. And I've also had friends uh, whose children have been killed by cops and they were not armed. And as an African-American, sometimes you see um, people who shoot in schools who are armed and they're able to subdue them when they are armed. And you have black kids who are not armed and you can't subdue them. Um, Tamara Rice, who was a 12, 13 year old kid playing with a, he got shot and killed. So it's like all these different things. Um, so it's, um, it's tough as an African-American male, it's even tougher as an African father, because how do I tell my kids all these things? Like always be polite to police, always respond, even if they treat you bad, or put your hands up, all these different things. And I have to keep telling them that because these things are still happening. And sometimes they don't always happen in a situations where you can have it recorded or where other people even know about it. Um, and some police officers are blatant about it. I've seen cops, because I spent a lot of time in the library, I've seen cops harassing kids. And when I look to try to intervene, it's like, you have a problem, I'll give you a problem. That's a code that I will pin things on you if you don't keep walking. And this is at a library in broad daylight. Uh, so it's uh, all these things. Um, so it's, it's very tough and there's no blueprint of how do you cope as an individual as well as how do you try to um, prepare your children 
for what they may experience. You hope they don't experience it. Um, some parents were actually pulling their children and kneeling on them to teach them how to breathe, um, relax, so that they don't die when the cop does it to them. Oh I mean, God. that's something you shouldn't have to do. Now, I have to say, when you just said that, you know, you looked at your son who's getting tall and that worried you, that broke my heart because we look at our kids, we want them to get tall. We want them to grow big. You know, when somebody says, oh, look how tall your kid's gotten. And it's like a compliment. And for you to look at your son and think, uh-oh, he's getting tall and that might make him more menacing and make him more susceptible to, to you know, to, to violence by, you know, or, or to seem more threatening to people like that, 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 that's heartbreaking to me. So that's, we should all be proud of our kids growing up and getting older and taller. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want my kids to be tall, but I also know as an African-American, sometimes that could be perceived as threatening. And sometimes it could be life and death. Um, when I was in high school, we were informed to always keep our hands out of our pockets because cops can shoot you if your hands is in your pocket because we've seen it happen in this school. And if you're tall, it's even more worse because they, if a cop says they're fearful for their life, they have the right to then pretty much just kill you. But someone who is not armed cannot be afraid <laughs> of people who are armed. So it's, um, I don't know the word for it. I know words. Because I'm afraid of cops and I don't even want to carry a weapon. But I can't be too afraid where I show my afraid being afraid because then they may end up shooting me. And you mentioned earlier in the podcast, in the conversation, that you have friends who are cops. So do you ever have conversations with them about how you feel and your experiences? And if not, why? And if so, what were those conversations like? Yes. Um, I mean, they're in a precarious situation. I have several friends who are cops and they say, you know, they're trained for sense of mass and they're trained to, all you have to say is that you were fearful for your life. You fear for your safety. So if you're, if you're fearful for your safety as a police, then you can take the person out, but the person cannot respond in any other fashion or way. And also sometimes cops are also trained to profile. I know this because I have people that I grew up with who are also FBI agents, police officers. Um, all cops are not bad. Um, cops are human just like the rest of us. Um, however, just like in life, everything that we see in life, that all the different substance of life is a microcosm of what's going on in life. So if an individual is not as good of an individual, then they'll be even worse with power. And some cops are like that. Some people who are not cops are like that. So um, those things play. And I've had many conversations with my friends who are cops about this for, for that very reason, because they are also the ones who are black. I have cop friends who are not black. The ones who are black, they're in the middle because they're, even though they are protected because of code blue, their children are not protected. Their children could be out there somewhere and someone see them and see them as threatening 
and anything can happen. And there's no way to protect your children from any of those things. You, you try to educate, you try to make them be aware, but even with that, it is still, you're still, it's still a coin toss. You're still flipping a coin. And I think, and in terms of what, what can people do to, to, to help who are, you know, there's a bystander effect. Bystander effect is, you know, when, when a lot of people see things and because there's so many people that see it, you assume that someone else is going to do something about it. So no one does anything. So often when things happen, people don't do anything. So you don't have to be African-American or black to speak up when you see these things. So for, for example, when Floyd was being killed, there was a lot of people there the blacks were afraid if they do anything, that could be them. So then it becomes, if there are non-blacks there, do you want to risk yourself when you don't really have anything to gain? And that's where the selflessness come into play is being willing to speak up for something that doesn't directly impact you. When I was working on my PhD, often by men and women, I got criticized. Well, why are you working on women's studies? Like, you're not a woman. This doesn't impact you. Who's making you do this things? Like, <laughs> just do something else. But like MLK said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we have to look beyond what just impact us and speak for things that are unjust, even if they don't impact us. And the amount of ridicule I got on my study, you would not believe. And it went on for years. Um, people asked me if I was um, transgendered. Um, I mean, all kinds of questions. Some women said, like, no one would believe you about this study because you're not a woman, so you shouldn't be studying with, um, under representation of women in top leadership roles. But when you think about it, as I often tell people, yes, it's a woman um, problem is a woman challenge, but it's a societal issue. And the only way that we move forward is when people are not impacted, get it, and, and become allies and work towards equality and justice for everyone. So when a woman has, when women have certain challenges, it shouldn't just be women who are advocating for it. It should be all of us because it's a societal challenge. So I, as a man, you don't live in a vacuum just because I'm a man and it doesn't impact me as a man. You have aunts, you have sisters, you might have daughters. It's the same thing that I see with, with, with race, with racism or anything else, is that we have to look beyond what impacts us and think more of how to help society to make our society better. So when we speak up in, in small settings, racism doesn't start with cops when they have guns. It starts with when you make comments in your families that are racist, when you do things within your communities that are sexist, when you do things about, when you speak about other cultures or other individuals that are against humanity that you can correct within your small communities, that's when, that's when it builds before it becomes someone else dying on the street. So all these things starts, 
if if your children and my children were a year old and you put them together, they're just going to play because they haven't been influenced by society, by, by the environment. So the environment molds them into these things. So we still see 18-year-olds and people in college calling the Floyd Challenge where they actually, they're mimicking kneeling on somebody's neck and laughing because the thing is a laughable matter. Why? Because it doesn't impact them. It's not their family members who are being killed. It's not them who have to be constantly worry about, is my, are my hands visible in public? And when I'm in a professional setting, do so I come across as non-threatening? So all these things, but we all can help by speaking up in our small communities, from our families to places where we worship, to our hobbies. And over time, those little things with, even if it's just one person that doesn't have that mindset, that might be somebody that could save somebody's life down the line. You never know. Yeah, and you really um, explain to anyone who still doesn't get it why all lives can't matter until Black Lives Matter. And um, and that's a great thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Sometimes we get we we get um, sidetracked by by things. When you say Black Lives Matter, some people think that you're saying that oh, only this life matter and others don't matter. But the reason why people put the black in front of it is because blacks are dis disproportionately being killed, even when they're unarmed. Whereas you have people who have ammunition being subdued. So how is that happening? How can you subdue people who have ammunition and you can't subdue someone who doesn't have any weapon on them? So because so many, when you look at it's not just Floyd that people are talking. In the past five years, there have been over 150 people unarmed Blacks who have been killed. That's why there's a push where we say Black Lives Matter because people feel as though the way Blacks are treated is as though we're not even human, as though we're less than others. So that's why they say Black Lives Matter because when you, some of the officers who killed this unarmed Black men they don't serve any time. Michael Vick is accused of killing animals and he served time. So that's why the people say lives matter, black lives matter, meaning that if you, if the lives of pets and animals matter as they should, a human life should be even higher than that, right? So that's one of the things that people are really um, upset and hurt and angry about because of all these things. The, um, Taylor, who was shot eight times while she was sleeping in her own apartment with her boyfriend, if that was a Caucasian person and cops open fire, stand your ground, you can shoot back because you don't know who's entering your house. It was a no-knock warrant. And they entered the wrong house and killed her, shot her eight times. When the boyfriend returned fire, he's in jail. So think about that. They just killed your significant other, shot him eight times. You're in the dark, you're sleeping, so you don't know who's entering your house. And by you returning fire, now you're in jail. And you lose your significant other. So it's all these type of things that people don't, uh, those who are not Blacks may not understand They think that maybe Blacks are putting their lives above non-Black lives. It's not that. It's that all these instances are happening in a way that happens differently for 
for blacks. So for example, the the um, the individuals who shot Hamad uh, Marbury, they actually sent the police department sent a text to the um, to the housing that when he comes because they knew his schedule of when he runs that next time when they see him running don't call the police call these two people they were ex officers and they would do the job so that it doesn't impact the police so they knew and they intentionally targeted him and killed him they sh you shot someone who was running three times three times not once so are you afraid of your life and then you actually taped it and in their minds they take it to prove that he didn't stop when they asked him to stop. As children, what are we taught? Don't talk to strangers. So some three men with guns stop you. What are you supposed to do? Stop? I'm going to run if, if that was me, if that was anyone. So they were trying to justify the killing by saying that he didn't stop when they asked him to stop. So you shot him three times. And then beyond that, the killing um, has been justified through a narrative that he uh, was allegedly trespassing, which has nothing to do with him being killed. Um, going into a construction site somehow diminishes um, what those men did. Um, so that's a different narrative that's being introduced to sort of minimize what happened as if it's excused. So that's a whole other I'm conversation. Glad you that. I'm glad you mentioned that because they put that out there and then the owner of the construction house released the videos there are others, non-blacks, who did the same thing, and their lives were not in danger. There were many people of all ages, children, teenagers, adults, who went to the same thing, too, because the place didn't have a door, didn't have windows, so people were curious to see what was happening there. So if others can do it, and then he did the same thing and lost his life. And not only did he lose his life, you have to ask yourself when they talk about systemic racism. When he lost his life, no one was really doing any investigation. The cops were not, the, the individuals, they're not cops any longer. They were not arrested. They were not arrested because the cops already knew the situation and they saw the individuals as one of them. If it wasn't for the video being released, they would have gotten away with the murder. The same thing with Floyd. The reports that the police initially filed was that he was under medical duress. Of course, when you put your knee on somebody's neck for seven and a half minutes, your whole body weight, what is going to happen? Either you're going to break their neck, something medical is going to go wrong. So it's all these things. So the reports itself is troubling because it's, so, it's systemic in the way that it is cover up. And that specific police officer had 16 complaints. No, it tells you there's no accountability. There are other 16 complaints against them that nothing has happened. And if it wasn't for the video, nothing would have happened. Right, and like you said, yeah. not, it's not always gonna be a chance to have a video or a witness or, or some corroboration of your story. So if you're, I'm assuming, you know, that if you're black that it's, and it's one word against another, that the tendency, especially in the law enforcement community, is to believe the police officer or the white person. Right. And even if they're wrong, you know, there's code blue. So they will want to protect themselves for to diminish or minimize 
um, bad public relations. And who is policing the police? In, in every aspect of professional life, we, we want um, delineation of duties to make sure that there are steps being taken and you, you can have checks and balances in place. With the police, the way it is now, there are no checks and balances in place because they will do their own investigation. Obviously, you don't want your organization, your precinct to look bad. So even if it's something that someone should be responsible for or that you can try to eradicate within your organization, often it goes unnoticed. Um, with Brianna's case, the same thing. The officers, no one was, no one was charged because an officer broke into the wrong home, killed someone, and then put the other person in jail. <laughs> so you're supposed to just sit there and let them kill you too when they just killed your spouse or your significant other. So these things are very appalling, and that's why there's an outcry that non-Blacks do not care because you hear about some of these stories and people just go about with their lives. The only reason that people care more now is because it's like, oh, houses are being burnt and places are being destroyed, but you're not um, so concerned about these lost lives. You're more concerned about property, property that can be replaced. Human okay, beings. So, okay, so I'm going to interrupt just for a second because I feel like I have to say this because it's something I'm thinking and I, I you know, I want it our goal in this conversation is for you to share your experiences and our, our, um, a natural consequence of that goal is that at times we should and do feel uncomfortable. So when you're sharing this, I so eagerly want, wanted to jump in and say the following, and I want you to tell me why I'm so uncomfortable in a way, if you, if you can, not why, but how to respond to this. And that is, but Will, I have so many friends who are police officers. I appreciate all that my police officers do to protect my community. Every day they put their lives on the line to protect our communities. So how do we reconcile what is happening and what we need to do as allies to, and I'm not expecting you to answer this. I, this is rhetorical. What we need to do as allies to stand up to make sure this doesn't continue, but at the same time recognize that every day police officers leave their homes and aren't sure if they're going to come back. So it's, it's, a, it's a really hard dichotomy. It's a hard thing to grapple with, and I think there are a lot of people out there who wholeheartedly want to support the Black Lives Matter movement, but then there's this part of them that they're saying, but if I support that, am I not supporting my, my police? Am I not supporting the blue lives? And I'm, am I not supporting the first responders? And that is what is uncomfortable. I'm not expecting you to answer it, but I'm just sharing with you why it, I think there is, the passion is here, people are behind Black Lives Matter, people want to see change. The tears and the feelings of just complete desperation as to how can we change the situation. And the anger, the justifiable anger, it, it's unparalleled. And as you mentioned in the late 60s, that's the last time 
we've had anything like this. But the question is, and I don't expect you to answer it, I'm just saying, I think that is a barrier for people. They feel that they can't go all in and be an ally to Black Lives Matter because they feel like that's saying that blue lives don't matter. And I disagree. I think that we can be an ally to blue lives, but we can wholeheartedly support Black Lives Matter because there are a lot of good police officers out there. It's the bad ones. And the ones that continually have these um, disciplinary actions. This guy had 17 disciplinary actions against him before he put his knee to George Floyd's neck. And I don't expect you to answer it, but do you have anything to comment? Okay. So um, I want to clarify something in regards to what I said before in terms of the perspective of some in terms of the destruction of um, properties. I'm not advocating for destruction of properties. What I was um, trying to convey is the perception that some in the communities are feeling based on their hurts and anger of what they've seen. So I'm not advocating in any shape or form for destruction of properties or anything else. In terms of blue lives and things of that nature, um, I'm a male and I've done studies on women. So can I, as a male, not be a feminist because I'm a man? Do I have to speak against men? Do I have to be against men to be to speak against some men who may be sexist? You know, it doesn't have to be one versus the other. Like, there are cops of all races. Um, just like in you know, all organizations, they're bad apples. So when we're talking about racism, you're not talking about all oh, whites are this way. You're talking about those individuals and racism is not even just white. It's all races um, and, and outside of whites, even though we tend to look at the two extremes of white and black. So in order to advocate for injustice or speak up for injustice doesn't mean that you are diminishing the good work that others do. Um, I know a lot of good cops and there are a lot of good cops that I don't know. And we are very grateful for everything that they do. It's not diminishing what they do. We're trying to mitigate the cancer in the house. The cancer is the racism. So in terms of, you're not talking about, you're talking about cops who see kids and just knock them out because they can. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about being against cop because you are speaking against injustice we're not anti-police we're not anti-blue because th th we all serve a purpose and cops are part of that cops helps us in, in so many ways and we're grateful for them for all the good that they do so we're not diminishing the good that they do but what people are talking about and where the pain comes from is from the freddie graves and all these things that happened, that continue to happen. So when you think about Colin Kaepernick nailed and other people nailed, but nothing happened. That was the peaceful part. That's why some people took it to this extreme because it's like when we did it peaceful, nobody paid attention. And often sometimes people sweat, you have to be careful about changing the narrative. So like, in, I don't know Colin Kaepernick, I'm just saying from experiences of how people perceive these things. Colin Kaepernick was advised by a veteran that 
for his stance against police brutality, not against police, it's against police brutality, meaning those who choose to take law into their own hands and not allow people to have their rights that others have. He was kneeling for that. And then he got switched and got changed to he's against America. So now then people go from, am I going to go an MLK version where no one is listening and I lose my job like Colin Kaepernick did, or I'm just going to go up Malcolm X stands and say, bring it on. So that's where people are coming from. But none of this is about against police or, or, or other people who help serve our nation. That's not the issue. So the issue is the abuse of power by some. Because in anything in life, nothing is, we're not talking umbrella statements that, oh, all cops are bad because you see this cop do this. I've, in my experience, I've had people discriminating against me who were white, and I've had people who were white who were very loving and who have helped me in so many ways. So when I talk about racism, I can't say, oh, this is what white people do. I'm just saying for, for the minority within the, the race of Caucasian. Does that make sense? So it's not an umbrella statement of all cops or all non-blacks. Um, and even I feel like some of this stuff, we should not just talk about black and white because racism is not limited to Caucasian. Um, there are other races who are not Caucasian who also practice. Um, and it's, it's taught. That's what I was trying to allude to earlier. Um, discrimination, biases, racism is taught. And it's taught early on based on what you foster in children. When you see children having um, flawed challenge, that's a taught behavior. To, to hate another person is a learned behavior. So what we can do, whether you're a cop or non-cop or, or all the different facets of professionalism that we have, is to teach our children uh, to treat everyone equally and also to speak up for people when you see an injustice. I don't have to be a woman to speak up for uh, an injustice if I see somebody who's a sexist in the workplace. And by speaking up for them doesn't mean I'm against men. So it's the same thing with cops. Speaking against um, injustice by some cops doesn't mean I hate all cops or I'm talking about all cops are bad. For, for I mean, some of my cop friends may hear this podcast. I'm very proud of all the stuff they've done. Some of my cop friends have saved my life many times. Um, I've called on some of my cop friends to help educate my children. So I don't want it to be perceived or come across as an umbrella statement towards a whole group, a whole profession. I appreciate you. You didn't have to answer my question, but I so appreciate that you did. And it was rhetorical. Um, I understand this. I think many people do, but in this polarized nation that we have right now, if you can, your words can reach one person who before didn't quite understand that it's not because you support one movement means you're against another, then you've helped someone be a little bit more um, woke on what's happening and why we need to support Black Lives Matter so that we can eradicate the injustice. 
practice that continues to happen year after year. So thank you for explaining that um, so clearly. And because this is a running podcast, we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit specifically about the running community. So how do you feel? Um, you mentioned that you've been an active member of MCRC. You've done um, many of the programs. Um, what, what is the landscape to you in terms of other runners of color? And do you feel, ever feel or have you ever felt marginalized or have you felt welcomed? And just what does that look like for you as a distance runner in our community? When I first started, well, my first year in cross country, my cross country coach, Coach Moore, uh, informed me that I had a, a white boy's body. Um, and the reason for that, and the reason for that was that uh, my African American peers were very good in 100 meters, 200 meters, like events that I sucked at, or I was in that was in my strength. I was a middle distance distance runner. Um, so even from an early age, or at that time, distance running is predominantly um, non-black. Um, so I guess that's been, for me, that's normalized because when I run cross country, I usually look like a zit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so as an adult, I, I guess it doesn't really um, stand out because I've been, it's been normalized um, for me from an early, early age. But you, yeah, but you are marginalized in terms of, you know, there's not a lot of us who, there's not a lot of people who look like me. Even when I look through my pictures from different different events, often there are times when I may be the only person or I may be one of few people. Um, and I think that's nationwide. Um, why do you think that is, sorry to interrupt, but why do you think that is, Well, I mean, we've recognized that as coaches, like we often say in our programs or, you know, the people we coach, like, is, why, why do you think that is? Is there, you know, I don't, just putting it out there. Do you think there's a reason? Is there? I don't know. Uh, sometimes I run through parts of DC and I see like, um, when I, when I run parts, areas where it's predominantly black and I'm like, like, why are you running if nobody's chasing you? You know, it's a different perspective. And then when I get to other parts where there's other runners and I'm like, oh, there's my people, you know, distance running people. Um, I don't know why there is in terms of um, underrepresentation of minorities in distance running um, specifically. I I know uh, Usain Bolt um, was trying to do something similar too where it talks about being a sprinter and because, you know, sprinting, it's, it's, it's um, instant gratification. No offense to any of my sprinter buddies and friends, but it's instant gratification. Um, long distance is just, you're just gunning it out. There's nobody to cheer you on because even when we run cross country, no one is there the whole course. They see you at the beginning, they see you at the end. Um, when I watch my, my, my son is a sprinter, when I watch the distance, I even feel bad for the distance runners and I was one of them, you know, no one is watching it as much as they're watching the other events. Uh, and people often don't even realize how fast they're going because you're comparing them to the 100 dash and they're doing 3,200. I was a, I did two miles in high school and it looks like they're just running slow. 
and it's predominantly Caucasian again, even at this, at my son's school, and even when I was in high school. So I don't know why that is um, specifically, but but yeah, you are you are marginalized because you often don't have peers that um, that resemble you. Have you had instances in your experience as an adult distance runner, um, positive or negative, that you would want to share? Positive or negative? Because I don't want to assume that they are negative, but, you know, share. I've had more positive than negative, but I did have a negative that um, really stung. Um, at one point, I was nominated for a, a leadership role in a running community. And after nomination for the leadership role, I was um, I was approached by some of the leaders and asking me questions about how many Boston's marathons I've ran to qualify me to have the leadership role. And do I realize that some of the runners are physicians and high people? And and I guess the person doesn't even know that I actually work with people who are physicians. Um, Not that it matters. It's a rule right. in a running girl club. It shouldn't matter at all. Uh, but it was kind of like microaggression. So it was just a lot of layers of questions and inquiries and um, it got questioning to your qualifications and your ability to to lead a group of people who may be very experienced runners or you know physicians or I don't know. Right. that's shocking that's yeah and um it got so bad that um at one point I just retracted myself because I didn't run it as my outlet running as like my love place my playground and I didn't want that part of my life to be tainted by um, societal ills or microaggressions. So eventually, after going through all kinds of questioning and I, I, I just removed myself because it was starting to spill into my into my professional life and people will be, well, I'll go into a professional meeting and people will start asking me questions about my qualifications for the role. It got very bad. Um, it, it, it got very bad. And I just, I had to make a decision on if this is what I deal with outside of running, is this something I want to also deal with in running? And I wanted my running to be as pure as possible. So eventually I removed myself to avoid all the microaggressions and that I was um and this was a volunteer leadership role. It was. Right. Why do you want to voluntarily put yourself <laughs> in a position where you feel like my time, else? my experience and my passion. I was even I was even I was even criticized for what did I say? Oh, you participated in three programs. The average person would not be able to do that. So I, um, you might not be the best person for this role. So I'm like, so because I work hard. You're involved. <laughs> You're really so like Because I work hard to um, do. But other people who did the same thing were 
okay for those um, leadership roles. Um, well, thank you for sh sharing that experience because the leadership roles change all the time. And by you sharing that negative experience, while we're so sorry you had to experience that and you had to withdraw, um, that's horrible. A silver lining is perhaps people will be more thoughtful and more um, paying more attention moving forward because I'm guessing that the microaggression was people probably didn't even realize that they were doing that. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, naturally we gravitate towards people that we have things in common with. And often people we have things in common with are people who are like us, they have similar backgrounds and things of that nature. So sometimes it's like unconscious bias and unco unconscious um, microaggressions. Which doesn't excuse it. Right. Um, but it, but it, got, yeah, it got so bad. I mean, there was a time I didn't even run because I was just so hurt by it. And there were even people that I agape love, that I love, that I've run with for a long time and seen how their behaviors changed. Um, it, it, it hurt me pretty, pretty bad. Uh, but luckily, somebody did advise me because um, people know these things happen. I'm not the first. I'm not the last. Um, and I got two advice. Uh, one was, now you know why people move away from the club sometimes, but keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is you love running, so keep running. And the reason why they shared that was because there are people who have had similar experiences and they removed themselves also because it just got so because you spend so much time with these people and you you get to like love them like extended family members so when you experience these things it really um hurt so some people just they just stop running because they're all their memories and experiences kind of tainted so that person gave me that advice to encourage me that no matter what like this is part of it <laughs> Just make sure you find a way to, even if you have to run by yourself, find a way to keep running. Um, the second advice I got was that, that was helpful, was that if you report and engage, then you engage in a war. And in war, nobody really wins. And you engage in a war where you are an extreme minority. So perceptions are gonna be very skewed. So do you wanna engage in this or let it go and focus on your PhD and keep it moving? And um, so that was a, a, a second advice that I got that was um, very helpful. Well, we're sorry that you had to be in a position where you even had to make that decision as to whether to engage in a war or not because that's not what running's all about. And you were willing to step up for a volunteer position and we're sorry that you experienced that. Thank you for that. And I wanna emphasize also that, um, yeah, those were the negative experiences, but I also have tons of positive experiences. Um, because running is very personal to me and I'm passionate about it. Um, there's a lot of people that I've, that I've met 
that enriched my life through um, through running. And also, um, while working on my PhD, there were, you know, some of my running buddies that there were times when I felt like, you know, this stuff is just, it's not worth it. Just, you know, throwing a towel and people who encourage me or give me a listening ear or meet me at Panera Bread because I was, wherever there's a library or coffee shop, I was trying to go there after a run to get some work done. Um, you know, people give me, gave me tips or people who helped me with um, finding participants for my study. Typically, my type of study usually have about five to 10 participants and I end up having 40 participants. So, um, you know, I'm very thankful and very grateful for, for those positive as well. Um, and I guess the way that I look at it is, you know, roses have thorns. <laughs> Um, well, similar to what we were talking about with, with, you know, you can't make a blanket statement that all, you know, all cops are bad or all, um, I like what you said before we actually, before we got on, before we started recording, you, you said that you've, um, taught your kids that just because somebody doesn't look like you doesn't mean they're against you. And just because somebody looks like you doesn't mean they're with you. And I think that's kind of overarching is good, is a good, is a really important point to make, um, that, like you said, every rose has, has, has some thorns. So there might be something very, you know, while there something may be good in the, in the broader sense, there can be thorns within it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I tell my children, you know, and everything in life, you know, when you pray for rain, so their fruits and things can grow, it just doesn't grow. You still have to deal with the mud. That's part of the process. Um, so I'm not, not to excuse, um, the negative, but sometimes as in life, you know, that's, that's life sometimes. Um, hopefully my experience will make the next person's path smoother as somebody that I don't know might, might've made my path smoother. Um, and running, you know, for me, running is, um, it's a great outlet is, uh, it's um it, it mimics life in, in so many ways uh, there's so much that you can get from running there's so much i've gotten from running from when i was a teen to, to the present time um it, there's a lot of inspiration that i draw from running there were times when i was um coaching and i was coaching um a, a young lady and one time she told me she had to stop so i was like oh why why are you gonna stop what are you gonna stop for and she's like oh my insulin is low and she lifted a shirt and she had all these things on her and i was like she never complained once and with training or any of that stuff and she's going through all that and money still helps her with her challenges or health challenges i also know someone else i know multiple people who uh, I ran with who had cancer and other diseases and like so there's so much beauty in running um and so I wanted to really emphasize that as well I, I don't want the, the negative to overshadow overshadow the good um there was another lady that I knew that ran pretty well and one time we we're like oh we're gonna meet up and run at this time and she was like oh no I have my um chemotherapy and I was like oh, what <laughs> Because prior to that time, I didn't know that she had cancer. So um, that was a message to really draw, um, to bring home for runners as well as um, future runners that 
you don't have to be perfect to be a runner. You don't have to have everything aligned. There's people with all kinds of different abilities who are runners and running can help so many people in different ways. And when you allow yourself to really fall in love with it, you get to see how running can transform and help in all aspects of life. And ideally by having these kinds of conversations, we'll also be able to have running hopefully transcend and, and allow people while running together to talk about more difficult topics. Because as you know, as a distance runner, when you run with people, those conversations remain in the vault, but they're often intimate and difficult conversations that you wouldn't have ordinarily. So perhaps by you having the um, willingness and courage to come on and talk today about your experience, experiences, we are hopeful that once people can run together, your experience will open the door for others to share and um, elaborate on their experiences. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we always, we're always so, um, we've always been inspired by you. And like we started this out by saying, I've always admired um, you know, how you're raising your boys and just the father that you are. And um, you're just such an amazing person and your, um, your insights and your willingness to talk to us today is, is really, really appreciated. And I, I think you're right that running mimics life and we learn in running that you're going to go through some hard miles that you want to give up and that it just seems like it's over and um, really challenging, but around the next corner is usually your second wind or somebody who's going to cheer you on or, or better, you know, better miles. And we always say, you know, this too shall pass. And, and that's my hope is that we're really at the bottom right now and really in a, in a difficult place. And I think we're all feeling it, but I hope that around the corner that there's that second wind or those cheerleaders that we're waiting for, that metal that's waiting for us down the road. And there's never a finish line in, in this, you know, in, in, in life, but it definitely, like you said, is a metaphor. Running is a metaphor for life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the running community is a, is a very beautiful community. I've been fortunate to be part of the running community since I was 15. Um, like I said, I don't know where I'll be without, without, um, I always say I don't know where I'll be without running in my life. It's, it's my, my, my first love. So, um, and great to see other people and, and join the, the same the same thing, so. Well, we're happy the running community brought us together to meet you. And we also are so grateful that you took the time to share your experiences. We know that this isn't easy and, and you didn't have to come on today. Um, and we are just so appreciative and, and understand the mental energy that it takes to do. We don't understand, but we appreciate the mental energy that it takes for you to come on and share your experiences with us. So, uh, Will, we learned so much from you and we want to thank you. And, and we know our listeners will so appreciate you sharing your life experiences with them as well, especially this week. Thank you both. Thank you both. And you guys are awesome. So keep doing what you're doing in the communities. You reach more lives than you, than you realize. We often talk about um, you guys and your program outside of um, the program itself with, uh, within other programs. So um, the community, myself, we really appreciate what you, the two of you do as well. Thanks, Will. Thanks, right. Will. Take care. 
right, sending you big hugs. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.